Again, this morning's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. This is what Holy Scripture says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please keep your Bibles open there to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, what the passage Dwight just read for us from uh, chapter 1, verse 15 and following. Uh, I don't know if you've given much thought to what a motto is. A motto is uh, a way of capturing the idea of something. I'll tell you the motto, you, you tell me the something. Okay, here we go. Just do it. Oh, the, the earlier service was more athletic. They all said Nike much louder. Uh, okay, how about this one? The happiest place on earth. Disneyland, yes. Uh, here's an easy one. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. Yes, MasterCard. Uh, delighting in God to the glory of God for the good of all people. Grace Fellowship Church, yes. Good job. Glad you got that one. You did better than the first service. Uh, so the motto of Grace Fellowship Church is not a Bible verse. It's a summary of what we think the Bible teaches should be the primary mission of every individual Christian. The primary mission of every Christian is to delight in God, to the glory of God, and for the good of all people. And almost every year in the 21 year, 20 whatever it is, of Grace Fellowship Church, uh, I have preached either one sermon or a series of sermons on delighting in God. And the reason I do that is because this is one of the things for Christians that you kind of lose the forest for the trees. You can, you can sort of forget that the objective of our life is God himself. And you can get busy with all kinds of even very excellent religious things, good things, and still be distracted from the primary mission, which is to treasure God himself. And the Bible teaches this all over the place. I'm going to take uh, a couple of Sundays 
as I finish out this series in Ephesians, just to show you two places in the book of Ephesians where you can spot this. You won't find the words delight here, but you will see modeled for you what it means to delight in God. The one we're looking at here, it's the two prayers in the letter, the one here in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, and then in chapter 3, verses 14 down to the end of that chapter. And in both of these prayers, uh, Paul is modeling for you what it means to be happy in God, to find your joy, your ultimate joy in the person of God himself. So let's just look at the early part of this first prayer. Paul begins here in verse 15 with the words, for this reason. And by, by, by those three words, he's linking his prayer to what he just said. What did he just say? Well, he just said uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which, by the way, in the, in the original language in which Paul wrote was one sentence. You can't translate it that way in English because we run out of commas and semicolons and things. It starts to not make sense, so we divide it into sentences. But Paul is just like exploding in this hymn of praise to God for all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And it's a wonderful expression of praise. It's to the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he's praising God for God's work in eternity past. He's praising God for his work in the historical past. He's praising God for his work in the present, in the lives of these people. And he's praising God for his, what he will do in the future, what's guaranteed in the future. Now, we tackled that long sentence in point one of sermon one of this series, Just Act Like Christians. I was talking to a sister on the way in uh, to the first service, and she said, you know, I don't really like this title, Just Act Like Christians. Sounds like you're saying, just pretend to be Christians. I thought, well, let me get that clear for everybody. That's not what I mean. Let's act like Christians. No, I mean, let's do the things that Christians are supposed to do, right? So we get our, so you can change the title, you can scratch it out on the front cover if you like, just, let's just do like Christians, whatever you want, as long as we all understand that's the point. And so that, that first sermon, we're talking about identity, you've got to understand who you are in Christ, and when you have proper understanding of your identity, it's going to lead to behavior. And the, the first thing that we notice there in verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 is that I summarized it this way, you are chosen. That's a very minor, like tiny way of trying to summarize uh, 11 or 12 verses of amazing theology. But Paul gets to the end of that long, you know, hymn of praise, right? Verses 3 to 14. And he does what I think I used to do when I taught seminary a little bit. You'd be in a class and I'd be teaching something. Um, It actually happens sometimes here too. And you're looking around at people's faces and you realize they don't have a clue what I'm saying. <laughs> I, am, I am either a horrible teacher or this topic is so profound that nobody's getting it. And so you kind of internally begin to pray and say, Lord, help me, help them so that we all get it. That's what Paul is doing in his letter. So he writes this amazing hymn of praise and then boom, for this reason, he begins to pray. We forget sometimes. The apostle Paul had seen the resurrected Jesus, right? And and he'd been caught up to the third heaven. Like he had visions and and things that he didn't even write about because they were too great. They They weren't to be put, pen was not to be put to paper for the things that he knew and saw. 
And so what, what Paul is doing here, in ver- the first part of the chapter, he's just, this is what's true about what God has done. And then he's looking at everybody almost like, don't you guys get it? Let me pray for you. This is why I pray for you. I want you to get it. I want you Christians to get it. I want you to see it. I want you to understand it. So what's his big request? What's the one thing he's asking God to do for Christians? What's the same thing God had done for him? So he prays, verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. That's a way of saying since I've seen ample evidence that you are truly born again, that you're truly Christians. For that reason, since I know you're Christians, I do not cease, I don't stop giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that, here's what he prays for, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, in the knowledge of him. Paul tells these Christians I'm praying that the triune God, since you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm asking the Father that he would send his Holy Spirit to you who already know him so that you would know him more. I want you to really know him, which means that knowing God requires God to make himself known to us. We know that uh, God, for his own wise purposes, may actually keep people from knowing him. I can prove it to you. If you looked at Luke chapter 18, uh, Jesus has, is describing there what's going to come. What He's saying, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be spat upon. He's giving all the details of what is to come. And this is what Luke writes about the disciples who are listening to Jesus give them specifics about what's coming. Luke 18, 34. The disciples, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. So God in his own wise purposes at that point is hiding the knowledge of God from the disciples. And just hours before his death, Jesus gathers these same disciples together. John 16, verse 12, he says to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It's not the right time. You couldn't, you couldn't understand it. You couldn't bear it. And then he continues, when the spirit of truth comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the disciples needed the Holy Spirit to make known to them all that the life and death of Jesus meant because they couldn't put it together on their own even though they witnessed it all. So just seeing Jesus do the miracles was not enough. They needed the Spirit of God to, to, to make it known to them. This is, this is why, I'm just pausing here because I think it's important to observe, this is why nobody reasons their way into Christianity. Nobody can just think their way into believing on God. Nobody can save themselves. God has to do something to enlighten us, to teach us 
None of us come to right conclusions about God. First Corinthians, Paul writes to the Corinthians chapter two, verse 11. He says, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And then he continues a few days, a few, a few verses later, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So you, you need the Holy Spirit is what Paul is saying. Until the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes, you will never come to right conclusions about God. Nobody can truly know God apart from God making himself known to them. That's true at the front door of the Christian faith. It's true in the living room as well. We are in constant need God must initiate and God must sustain our relationship with him. Now, I use the word relationship there very deliberately. Why relationship? Well, that requires us to say something about the, the thing Paul's praying for, the, the knowing of God, that word know. When Paul is making this prayer, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Is he just praying that we would get better theology? Is he just asking God for more facts? Let them have more facts. I don't think he is. Do you remember Jesus told this little parable. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, this is a judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Jesus continues, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, clearly, whoever these people are, they, they knew about God. They, they knew enough about Jesus to do religious works in his name. They're prophesying, they're casting out demons, they're doing mighty works in his name. But God says to them, I never knew you. Does that mean that you know, the omniscient God somehow like, oops, you guys slipped my notice. I didn't see all those good things you did, sorry. No, of course not. What is Jesus saying there? When he says, I never knew you, he means we never had a personal relationship. There was never any real personal intimacy between you and me. You were doing religious things all right, but you were doing them apart from me. I never knew you. Somebody might say, uh, do you know Justin Trudeau? And I'd say, well, yes, but no. I mean, uh, one day I was walking on the streets of Ottawa and I saw actually uh, a high-ranking member of parliament and I walked by because I didn't know what to do. And so, uh, but, but somebody might say, did you, did you, do you know who Justin Trudeau is? And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I know who he is, but he doesn't know me. I don't know him. We haven't had a conversation. I don't know anything about him. But if you came to me and said, do you know Susan Martin? I'd be like, yes. Oh, yes, I do. And I love her too. I like her a lot. I know all things about her. What do you want to know about her? I'll tell you anything. You want birth date? What do you want? Like, I, I know her. You want me to introduce you to her? I can make that introduction because I have a relationship with her. That's how Paul is praying here. He's using that second sense. 
His prayer to the Ephes- about the Ephesians, for the Ephesians, is not that they would meet God for the first time. I really hope you guys get to meet God. That's not what he's praying. He just said, I, I already see evidence that you are Christians. You know God. I am praying that you would grow in your personal intimacy with God, in your relationship with God. And since God is good and wonderful and lovely, if you grow in that personal relationship, you will grow in your personal happiness your delight in him. How can I be so sure about the happiness part, the delight part? Because the person that Paul wants you to know is good. He is the definition of good. He is righteous. He is pure. He is holy. Everything that is right and good in the universe comes from him, from the father of lights with whom there is no no shifting shadow. And so in every bit that you inch closer to him, the more you will find your delight in him to increase. The closer you get to the fire, the, more, the warmer your face will grow. William Bramwell was a missionary to Ireland, and at the end of his life, he was writing a friend, and he said this. The quotes on the back are somewhere in your song sheet there if you want to follow along. He wrote, the more familiar acquaintance we have with God, the more honest intimacy, personal relationship we have with God, the more do we partake of God. He that passes by the fire may have some gleams of heat, but he that stands by it has his color changed. You've you've camped before maybe or been outside and somebody's had a backyard fire. If you walk by, you catch some of the heat. But if you stand there right up close to the fire, you begin to get warm, very warm. Your, Your skin color may even change to reflect the heat. He that passes by the fire may have some gleams of heat, but he that stands by it has his color changed. It's not possible that a man should have any long conference, any long uh, meaningful relationship with God and be in no ways affected. If we are strangers to God, it's no wonder that our faces become earthy. Bramwell understood what Paul understands here, that the way to delight in God is through personal relationship with God. It's to move from stranger to friend. Are you a stranger to the Lord right now, Christian? Or can you say, he's my friend. We're fellowshipping. We're communing with one another. The way you grow in your personal relationship, your your knowing of God, is by the Holy Spirit turning on the lights for you to see what God has done for you. That's what Paul prays. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So he's praying the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We need God to remove the scales from our eyes. We need God to open our eyes like he did for Elijah's servant. We need God to put on the anointed mud on our eyes so that we can see. And and the way that's going to happen is the more you understand what God has done in saving you, the more you will delight in God himself. So if you're finding right now that my personal sort of happiness in the Lord is kind of ebbing low, then look at what Paul is praying here. This is what you can pray for yourself. And what a wonderful thing, by the way, to pray for all the members of this church. 
Take out your directory. Pick somebody. You may not even hardly know them, but you can pray this prayer for them. And there are three things Paul prays for here. You'll see it with the word what. See if you can see the word what three times. What is the call? What is the inheritance? And what is the power? So let's, let's figure out how to pray for each other. You will delight in God as you understand, this is number one, his eternal choice of you. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which he has called you? So the first thing Paul is praying for here is that these Christians remember they're Christians, would know the hope that results from grasping God's effectual saving call. Now, I mentioned last week that hope in the Bible is the, do you remember, the confident expectation of a future reality. The word hope is, that's how it's used in the Bible. It's not, you know, uh, blind unbelief, wishful thinking, uh, playing the odds, I hope I win the lottery. No, not that at all. Hope is the confident expectation of a future reality. It is the actual confidence you have in something God has promised. And it's living your life, living your life in, in light of the promise, in light of what God has already promised. And here Paul says, I'm praying that you Christians... That, that your hope, that you would have this hope that is based on God's effectual call of you. And that word call is really important. Just go ahead a page to Ephesians chapter 4. You'll see that word mentioned four times. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk the pattern of your life, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, there's number one, to which you have been called, there's number two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is referring here to what we call the effectual, meaning effective. It, it accomplishes what God sets out for it to do. It is the effective call, the effectual call. It works. God calls, people come. I'm going to preach the gospel right now. You know what the gospel says? You need to repent and believe. You need to repent from your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus. If you have not done yet, done that yet, then I'm urging you to do that now. To turn from your sins and put all your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm calling you to do that now. If you do not do that, you will not go to heaven. You will not please God. The only way to be right with God is to turn from your sins and to trust in the Savior God has provided, the only Savior the world's ever going to know, Jesus Christ. What I am doing is I am calling you but my call is not effectual. I can't, with my call, make you respond. I need God to do something. I need God 
to work behind that call, the words of my mouth, and call you. Just, I need an effective, an effectual call. Jesus stood outside the grave of Lazarus. He was dead. He was buried. He'd been there for four days. And this doesn't make any sense. Jesus walked up to the tomb. He said, roll the stone away. And then he called Lazarus, come forth. That doesn't make any sense. That man's dead. That is what you call an effectual call. That's the same for you. If you have been called, it is because God effectually called. It might have been behind the voice of some preacher. It might have been behind the voice of some friend. It might have been as you were reading the Bible yourself. But God called you and you responded just like Lazarus did. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You can impress your friends at work tomorrow and say, yesterday I learned about the ordo salutis. That's Latin for order of salvation. I'm sure that will be very impressive around the water cooler. The order of salvation. How do, what happens? Well, this, the, here's the order right here. Foreknowledge, right? Those whom he, he predestined, he, rather those whom he foreknew, he predestined, so they're foreknown, which means God set his, his intimate love on them in eternity past. God put his love on you. That's what the, the whole idea of foreknowledge is not just knowing something that's going to happen in advance. It's, it's no in that pregnant sense of God in, intimacy and love. God put his love on you in advance, Fore, foreknown. You are predestined. God set boundaries about you so that you would be converted in your real life. God called. That's the next one. What is the call? That's God's effectually drawing you to himself in real time. At some point in your historical life, you respond to God in repentance and in faith. Those whom he called, he also justified. What does it mean? It means he declared them to be righteous, not based on what they did or what they're going to do, but based on what Jesus did. He took all their sins on himself and he gave his perfect righteous life for them in their place. And so now they are justified, they're declared righteous, and they are glorified as good is done. God is going to deliver them into glory to be with him forever and ever. And Paul is referencing the call here and saying, look, my brothers and sisters, the fact that you have been called by God should result in abounding hope, in abounding confident expectation of a future reality. Confidence that when you see God, you will hear the words, I know you. Won't that be a blessed phrase? I know you. I called you. Draw near. Enter into your rest. Friends, if the big doctrines of God's sovereignty, God's calling, God's election make you think that God is mean or complicated or scientific or something. You're not understanding what they are. You've got to work harder, a little harder. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. Who's the, who's the, the, the subject of that verb? Who's the one making alive? God. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And I would say by grace you have been called. That was part of the front end of God's work in saving you. And frankly, that should make you deliriously happy in God. You have been called. You were deaf when God supernaturally opened your ears to hear the call of his gospel. 
And that call might have come from a preacher like me who stood at the front of a room and said, repent and believe on Christ. And if you repented and you believed on Christ, it weren't the preacher's words, but it was God working in, through, and around all of those words to call you to himself. I don't think you heard some audible voice, but you in your spirit heard the call of God. He called and you came, and you had no choice really in the matter. You were just like Lazarus who was dead in the grave. And the first thing you hear is Jesus calling, and the first breath is is I repent and I believe. That is a miracle. And so we delight in the God who calls. Let's just pause and pray and do it now. Oh, Lord, make all of us here realize the depth of the power and love behind your effectual call so that our delight in you soars to the skies above. Amen. Takes me to my second point, the second thing Paul prays for. You will delight in God as you understand his future reward for you. So again, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The riches of his glorious inheritance. You ever been really excited by something and you kind of run out of a thesaurus? Like your mental thesaurus just runs out. Like, it was amazing. It was incredible. It was like, like you just you take all your happy words and you, you dump them together. You're making a point. This was really, really amazing. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He, he has just described in the first chapter all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. And now he's looking at our future inheritance, our future reward, and and he calls it this over-the-top inheritance. Uh, When I was first married, I used to hope that I had some rich uncle that was going to die and leave me millions of dollars. It sounded like a good plan to me and a lot easier than working hard. So uh, maybe you've had the same thought. but, But what if you did have a rich uncle, and imagine if he pulled you aside and he said, you know, by the way, you're my sole heir. You're going to get it all. Would that change how you live? Would it change how you felt towards your uncle? Paul described this future inheritance. Actually, I'll give you Peter. Here's how Peter described it. He said, the future inheritance awaiting awaiting every Christian is an inheritance that is imperishable, meaning it won't rot. It's undefiled. It it won't decay in any way. It's unfading. Nothing bad is, there's no decomposition. Nothing bad's happening to it. It's kept in heaven for you. It's reserved. That's a good inheritance. Can't be touched by inflation. Can't be touched by economic downturns. Can't be touched by uh, moths and rust, right? Jesus said, your your inheritance is where moths and rust do not destroy. And so Paul prays to the Colossians, that the Colossians would always be, this is Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints, of the saints, to share in the inheritance of the saints. And Paul's praying here in Ephesians 1 about a 
glorious inheritance. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? The word glorious means brightness, splendor, magnificence. It's an extraordinary inheritance. And then he piles up his words and he says, I'm praying you would know the riches of the extraordinary inheritance. It's not just glorious. It's abounding. It's overflowing. It's spilling over in gloriousness. I want you to taste something of the endless wealth of glory that marks your inheritance, what is reserved for you in glory. And, and it's something that's coming to all of God's people. That's what he means when he prays this, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Everybody who is a saint, that means everybody who's a Christian, everybody who's made holy by God, everyone who's in the realm of sainthood are going to inherit And we ask, inherit what? My answer would be, ultimately, we inherit God himself. John, in his letter, chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because, you ready for this? We shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. Oh, brothers and sisters, ponder the blessedness of the day when you finally hear, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We shall see God as he is. God will be with us. God will stay with us. God is our great inheritance. Who cares about gold or endless health or anything else when you can have God? If all heaven amounts to is money and pleasure and health and pretty sights, then it's going to be a total letdown, and eventually it will become a place of total boredom. What awaits you in glory is God himself, the one endless being of unsearchable goodness with whom you will be enthralled for all eternity, happy in God forever, world without end. God is the inheritance for which we wait. And knowing your inheritance, knowing your future joy with God ought to fuel, Paul says, your present delight in God. That's the logic. That's why he prays this prayer. Maybe that's why we should pray again. Oh, God, give us this delight now. Hear us as we ask, oh, Lord, to open our blinded eyes that we could see what awaits us. Make us find our joy in you, the one true good in the universe. Give us the eyes of faith to believe that you are worth losing everything in order to gain. 
And let our delight in you reach as high as the stars above. Amen. Finally, brothers, we come to the third thing that the Lord prays. You will delight in God as you understand God's power at work in you. God's power at work in you. This is verse 19. Long sentence, just track with the words. He's praying that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What kind of power? It's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. For above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It took God's power to save you. How much power? You might think, well, not that much power. I mean, he's God is God. He's omnipotent. I'm a feeble little creature. How much power could it really take? Paul reveals to you how much power it really takes. It took great power. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? It was an immeasurable, surpassing, exceeding amount of great power to save you. It was, it was mega power. And to be even more clear, it took resurrection mega power to save you. Paul prays here that we would know, we would, we would really understand and, and, be, and, and see what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believes, right, who believe, Power that is according to, or if you like, kind of the same as the working of his great might, his great power, that he worked in Christ. When he, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. The power that God used to raise Christ from the dead and put Christ on his throne is the same power that God used to raise you from your spiritual death and put you on that throne with Jesus. That's what it took to save you. More than that, it's the power that God exercised to put all other powers under Christ before he gave Christ to you. Verse 22, he, the Father, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, almost implying he was not complete without his people, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God flexes his omnipotence to put all created things under the authority of King Jesus, then takes King Jesus and gives him to you and me. He gives Jesus to the church, to his people. You might say God gives us God. And that's today. It's not some future thing. That's now. The ruling Christ belongs to the church of Christ. He's our elder brother. He's our friend, our dearest friend, our truest love, not just our Savior and our King. And God moved heaven and hell in order to make it happen. 
That's why Paul writes back in chapter 2, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he, God, might show, might display his, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You, if you're a Christian, are going on the trophy shelf of God. You are a trophy of his grace. It was not you. It was him. And God gives us God. You have been given God, the powerful, saving, ruling, perfect, holy, good God. He is yours. Oh, let's pause and pray again. Oh, Lord, help us to see these things to understand them. Send your Holy Spirit right now that our love for you and delight in you might reach to the ends of the universe. Warm these cold hearts of ours. Rouse these sleepy souls of ours. What's going to please us, God, if you cannot? Oh, God, hear our prayer. Lead us to true delight in you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, Paul is not just tossing out perky little metaphors for you to think about here. He has a serious prayer. He's praying that we would get it. He's praying that we would realize how dead we were, how lost we were, how hopeless we were, how poor we were, until God called us effectually and ensured that he himself would be ours forever, and he, how God used that omnipotence of his to raise us from the dead. And so Paul prays here, Lord, help them to understand their calling. Help them to understand their inheritance. Help them to understand your power. Why does he pray that? Because Christians cannot know those things. Christians can go through their lives not understanding what God has done for them. Imagine somebody gives you an all-access pass to Canada's wonderland, and you don't read the fine print, and you think it's just good enough to get you in the gate. And so you, you show your pass, and you get in the gate, and you find one of those uncomfortable park benches, and you sit down, and you look longingly at the rides and think, I'd like to go on that vomit comet myself, and that'd be awesome. And then you, you kind of sneak over to where the shows are, and you're sort of trying to peek through the fence and to see the shows, but oh, not for me, because I just had this all-access. Friends, you have an all-access pass to God himself. Are you sitting on the bench? Is your life just made up of Netflix and, and YouTube videos and going to work and trying to get something good to eat and having a, you know, going to the next restaurant thinking that's going to be awesome, but it was as bad as the last one? And, and that's where you're. No, God holds out before you Himself and He says, Delight in me. C.S. Lewis wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily 
pleased? What are you settling for when God offers himself? You might say, well, how, how does knowing these things that God has done in saving me relate to my delight in God? How could it not relate to your delight in God? Can you be bored with a being who set his love on you in eternity past for no foreseen merit in you? Can you be angry or sullen in this life when you consider that you are going to inherit this glorious being to enjoy forever and ever, world without end? Can you worry about your life when you remember that this eternal being has exercised his unlimited power to bring you from death to life? I think Paul had all these things in mind when he's writing the Christians in Rome and he says to them, if God is for us, who can be against us? Guys, really? <laughs> he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. It's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? Because we have God. The big questions about life and death are settled once and for all. And our joy is all tied up in the one who saved us, the one we love, and the one with whom we cannot be downcast for long in his presence. I mean, you might walk in there sad, but eventually you're praying the prayer of Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We saw last week, Satan's not going to just let you dance along your merry way delighting in God, right? Spiritual war. <laughs> it is not his plan to look at you and say, oh, that person's really happy in the Lord. I think I'll leave him alone. No, that just kind of elevates the attack. He's going to shoot all his flaming arrows to try and distract you and, and divert your attention and cloud your judgment and, and create doubt in these big, big realities, which is why Paul prays and tells you, this is what I pray for you. I pray that you would know what God has done for you. I pray that you would understand this hope of your calling, the, the surety of your inheritance, the, the, the level of, your, of God's power towards you. Because if you know those things, you're not going to get diverted. You won't be fooled. And brothers and sisters, that's why we need to pray the same things for each other. That's why you take that member book. You say, I don't know, Bob. Lord, pray that Bob, by the power of your Holy Spirit and the wisdom and the revelation of your spirit would grow in his knowledge of you, open the eyes of his heart so that his, his mind would be enlightened to understand what is the hope of his calling Today, even if he never knows that I prayed that for him today, I pray that he'd be going along through his day and he'd remember that he has been called by God and that would result in hope and confidence in God. What happens when everybody in this church is praying that for everybody in this church? 
What happens? <laughs> this church delights in God to the glory of God and the good of all people. Let's pray together. Lord, help us all. Help us to remember that we have been chosen by you, that we will see you, that we'll be with you forever one day. Help us to never forget the unstoppable power you exercise to give us life and guarantee our future. Oh, Lord, may our delight in you be real. Raise our expectations. Don't let us settle for the mud pies of this world. Each one of us determine that we will only be satisfied in you and nothing less. The real, glorious, loving, wonderful, kind, saving, good you. We ask in the name of Jesus, our great Savior. Amen. Friends, let's re